Well, Autoimmune Abby, <laughs> thank you so much for, for coming on and you've filled out this incredible form and I kind of thought I knew like we're just going to talk about medical gaslighting and we're definitely mm -hmm. going to talk about that. But you brought up so many really important things in your your form, like from like religion and ableism, which hit yeah. me in the, the crosshairs. Um, and uh, yeah, so where do you want to start? Do you want to start with medical gaslighting or do you want to start with? Yeah, I have a list. So anytime I, I can I have a whole bunch of things to talk to you about. Yeah, let's start with that because I think that's definitely really important. But the the ableism in religion is something I've been looking forward to talking about and um, haven't really talked about on Instagram very much yet because I'm not very open about that with uh, a lot of friends and family yet, but it's something that's important and harmful. So yeah, we should definitely talk about that too. And if at any time you feel uncomfortable with the line of questioning, just raise your hand and I will switch questioning. Like, that's good. no problem. Um, but you also had brought up uh, um, boundaries and I totally want to talk to you about yeah. boundaries. So I guess we'll start with medical gaslighting and okay. we could just kind of move through. Um, do you want to give just like a quick account of what you have so people know who aren't familiar with you? And if you are not familiar with Autoimmune Abbey, I have been stalking Autoimmune Abbey <laughs> on um, Instagram for a very long time. <laughs> and um, please go to Instagram and follow Autoimmune Abbey. I will refer to you as Abbey from now on, but okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure everyone had your, your handle. Yeah. So um, I have chronic migraine, which was uh, the first illness that I developed, like back when I was 22, um, I've had episodic migraine my whole life, but the chronic part started very suddenly um, and inexplicably. And so that was really disabling for a long time and really my first experience with the gaslighting. Um, and then symptoms just kind of started to quickly snowball after that. So then I started having like a lot of the POTS symptoms, which I know you also have. So you can relate to how, like, I don't know, how odd all of those symptoms seem individually and how, like, doctors are just like, I don't know what this is. It's probably anxiety. Like, <laughs> go see someone else. So, um, yeah, the POTS is really the second thing. And then um, undifferentiated spondylitis, which is... Um, uh, an autoimmune disease where your immune system attacks your ligaments, um, especially in large joints like the knees and Achilles and back and neck and that sort of thing. So, so that was the, the third thing. Um, and then, of course, along with all of the physical stuff came the anxiety and, um, I mean, mental illness is pretty much, in my opinion, like impossible to avoid when you're like, disabled and you don't know how to explain your symptoms. So, so yeah, all that fun stuff came along with the physical symptoms. So. By the way, if I laugh and someone says that it's at a <laughs> wrong point, I just need to explain. She has the cutest cat on her lap right now. He keeps <laughs> jumping up and batting and I swear I am not laughing at anything no. inappropriate. And if, uh, if you're okay with me putting it up on YouTube, you'll see exactly what's going on. <laughs> yeah. That is so, so cute. It is hurting. Um, you're right. Like if anyone can figure out how on earth you can get through chronic illness and the diagnosis process without getting a mental health issue, I, I need to hear yeah. how. Yeah. I, I, I will, I will take notes. Uh, we could write a book together, but mm -hmm. I don't know how you get through that without it. How did it, was that the medical gaslighting that really solidified yeah. that for you? Yeah, that was really the thing that kind of, 
I mean, I had always had some anxiety symptoms growing up, but it never became like a disabling mental illness, like diagnosable mental illness until the gaslighting happened. And that just really like messed with my head. Like I didn't know what symptoms I was experiencing were real and what were psychosomatic. Like I was just constantly doubting every moment of my, you know, lived experience with symptoms and that like messes with a person's head so much. And how did that manifest for you? Were you would it start with the migraines when you would go in to did you go to like yeah. the the college health place or did you go to family doctors or um so when I was a kid and I was just having episodic migraines, um, my pediatrician told me that they were like sinus headaches and he blamed it on allergies and kind of like dismissed it. So I went my whole life thinking like having migraines three or four times a month was normal and having chronic headaches was normal. And then, so when the chronic migraines started, I still, I didn't even know that they were migraines. I just thought like, oh, I'm having like bad headaches and I also feel nauseous all the time. And I didn't like understand what was going on. And then um, I kind of started out in the university health system, but then eventually after a few referrals ended up in neurology. And the first neurologist I ever had told me that chronic migraines were uh, basically all in my head and that migraine drugs are all placebos. So I basically ought to start uh, exercising more and worrying about my symptoms less and like medications weren't going to help me. I I don't have words for that one. I yeah. just don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. I was, that's the part that people don't get is so insidious is they have the white jacket on, they have right. the degrees on the wall and you don't know different. You're, you're pretty much just trained to look at them as an authority figure and nod. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had only ever been to like one specialist in my life prior to that point. So I thought that a neurologist would be qualified enough and authoritative enough to um, to be able to trust. I mean, it didn't ever even occur to me like that this is someone I should be skeptical of. And I didn't see the red flags. I just like took everything he said to heart. And that like was devastating because I went untreated with chronic migraines for probably like eight more months after getting diagnosed before I finally found a new neurologist. And she was like, he told you that medications are all placebos. Like we have like 15 medication options that can help get you your life back. <laughs> if you just think about like, how scared would you have been if you were having a headache to end all headaches, which could be an aneurysm and you wouldn't right. go into the doctor because you're scared or like, yeah. I was told that my parents were told I should be put in an institution because I had a CRPS and they didn't know yeah, it's, I couldn't walk or stand. And so they said, she's 16 and she can't walk. Obviously she's insane. And so they're recommending that I be put in an institution. Like that's, that's how intense and the, the ramifications of gaslighting. And then you don't go in. Right. Yeah. Then you, you think that your symptoms aren't worth medical care or aren't real. So you just like avoid the medical system because you don't think you deserve help. And that's really damaging. All right. Yes. 
And then there's the fear of like the um, TikTok nurse that everyone was talking about before, you know, when that was the biggest controversy, that one, remember that back then? Um, (laughs) And those of us who are on like um, opioids and those of us who have like conditions that could be seen differently, like if you get put on the list of you're a drug seeker, that's real world ramifications. Your pills get yanked. No one will, will give you medication for anything. So when like you have a TikTok nurse who's like being cute and trying to be funny. And that's like, okay, but now I have chest pains. I have POTS. Do I even right. go in? Because my blood work will show opioids in it. Right. And what will happen then? Because I'm too young for a heart attack. Well, I'm not too young for a heart attack now. You would be, but you know, at least I'm old enough that they go, oh, you are supposed to be sick. It's, it's the good thing of aging into, <laughs> into chronic illness and disability. Yeah. Suddenly they're like, oh yeah, you're old enough for this now. It's like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Last spring I had a bad case of pneumonia and and I had pleurisy with that, which causes a lot of severe chest pain. And I was like, so terrified to go to the ER. Um, my husband was like, no, seriously, we need to go to the ER. Like severe chest pain is something that you should always go to the ER for. And like, this is new and this isn't normal. But I was just like, they're going to call me crazy. They're going to tell me it's all in my head and they're going to send me home. And I don't want to waste, you know, hundreds of dollars at minimum on an ER visit that is going to just end with me being told I'm crazy. And sure enough, I had pneumonia um, and you know it was treatable and all that, but yeah, they don't understand that when you constantly gaslight patients, that has really serious impacts on not only our mental health, but also our physical health going forward. Because if you don't, if you're too scared to seek medical care, that can lead to life-threatening emergencies um, and just, unnecessary symptoms. Yeah. I like, (laughs) tell me if you're like this. I I always think maybe I'm just crazy, but um, do you ever get like a weird high when the doctor tells you something's wrong and actually shows you lab results as like, and here I can, I have receipts, you are sick. And it's like this weird, like, oh my God, like I almost get happy. And then I'm like, but this is a lifetime of pain and there's no treatment for it. But why am I so happy about this? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I felt like tremendous relief. Um, I mean, getting the spondylitis diagnosis and the POTS diagnosis was a very long, slow process for me and a lot of being unbelieved along the way. And the moments when I got diagnosed, I was elated. And very soon after, you know, I had to deal with all the grief and the ramifications of finding out that you have an incurable illness. But in the, the moment when I got the test results, it was like, yes, now I have the proof that I'm not making this up. It's not hysteria. It's not all in my head. It's real. Um, and now I can prove it. When I got the LR stainless diagnosis, you would have thought I got into Harvard. I was sitting <laughs> in the parking lot, sobbing and calling my mother. Like, yeah, it, it was that exciting. I was 36 when I finally got my diagnosis. So I've been six since I was eight. Wow. Like, and my mom had been the one who would tell doctors, no, she's not going to a mental institution yeah. and fight for stuff. So like, it was like this weird, like almost like you got into Harvard moment. It was like, we were both so elated that there was actually a thing and yeah. it had a name and it wasn't that we were both crazy. Like, mm-hmm. And conversely, whenever a test result would come back negative along oh God. the process, it, that feels horrible. And I, I remember one neurology nurse telling me, no, you should be happy. Like this means that you don't have a disabling chronic illness. And I was like, 
no, this just means we don't know what disabling chronic illness I have yet. Like that one <laughs> here, just because the test result came back normal. Oh my God. Yes. No, like you said that, and I'm not kidding. My chest tightened up. Just remembering yeah. that feeling of waiting for them to tell me that I was healthy. Like yeah. I literally felt that chest tighten and like blood pressure go up. Like, I felt like I just read like a tweet, you know, like yeah. <laughs> political tweet right there. I was like, ah, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's one of those brutal under discussed things. Like if we were ever going to do a TV show with chronic illness, like we would have to show that. Like, mm -hmm. that's what I wish people would understand and believe is like when the doctor's like, but you don't have this, you should be thrilled. And it's like, no, this just means that we don't know what it is and how serious it is. Yeah they don't understand that getting a test result is the key to getting a diagnosis and getting a diagnosis is the key to getting accessibility, mm. accommodations and treatment and being believed by all your other specialists. And it's, if you don't have that, you're just kind of stuck and you just have to wait for it to get worse before you can ever figure out what's causing it. It's a lot of the, um, the question we're having in society right now, which is if the gatekeepers don't have the problem they're solving, you have a huge issue. And to be in the medical world, it would be, it's very hard to be disabled and be a doctor or be a hospital administrator, or like you're finding out with your own job searches, the ADA doesn't go far enough in protecting yeah. you for what you need to be in this field. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I don't, include my last name on any of my and we will not <laughs> yeah on any of my internet advocacy work I mean I just realized we can't release this video I was like I was gonna say we could release oh. it and everyone could see the cute cat I'm like no we can't never mind oh, okay. sorry there will be no video of this my apologies everyone <laughs> I guess I guess that could probably be covered up but but I didn't uh, that. Yeah, uh, next time we'll do with masks and like the whole changing yeah. voice thing. But <laughs> yeah, this right. time we'll just, I'll, I'll be the one who saw the cute cat and you're just gonna have to believe me, I do not inappropriately laugh at people. Just take that one as is. So you've been looking for, a, you've, you were talking about like the accommodations that people couldn't make and just kind of pushed off as like eccentric. So yeah, when this is something that I've struggled. I mean, I'm not working at the moment, but I am going to school now, but um, I struggled with this in both my previous job and, and um, my education. Fortunately now everything's online, so it's not an issue, but um, with chronic migraines, like my number one accessibility need is no fluorescent lights, but people think that's just a preference when I talk about that. Um, and they don't understand like, no, these lights are physically painful to me and I won't be able to stay at work all day. I won't be able to stay in the classroom um, in person with this lighting situation. So you can either allow me to do work in school from home or you can help me try to make this a little less painful. Um, so that, that was an accommodation that was really hard to get. You would think it would be simple. It's just a matter of like changing the light bulb or like turning off a couple of lights. But um, for some reason, people are really resistant to making accommodations for migraine. If for anything, I mean, trying to get, um, trying to explain to someone who's parked in the disabled parking spot, who's working in the building, like not just someone who's just like, I'm parking here. It's like a person who's working for the building and parking their giant truck through the disabled spots, how angry they will get if you ask them to move so you can park in a handicapped spot is 
insane. Like just, and I'm thinking like for schools, like you had to go through elementary school, middle school, high school. Those are all fluorescent lights. Yeah. Like all. It didn't really become a serious issue until I had chronic Uh. migraine. So I was like almost at the end of my first degree. Um, But I chose the job I did out of college specifically because of the lighting situation Mm. and the work environment that I was working at there. I was like, great, it's, it's dark in their workspace. This job will work for me. Like, (laughs) I find it so interesting how many of us who get sick during formative years choose our careers based on illness. I I actually had to walk away from the job I wanted because I'm not good at statistics. It wasn't even a health thing. I wanted to be a therapist. I had to pass statistics. It was never going to happen. So I chose a different path, but like all of us seem to choose things based on like what we think will actually be what we can do and what already has the setup for it. Like if you want to push against that and become a doctor, it's going to be so many more barriers. Like, yeah, I'm actually um, planning on becoming a therapist. So, and, and part of that decision was, or a large part of that decision was based on my experiences with chronic illness and disability. One, I get to make my own hours and my own workspace um, if I own my own practice, but two, like I know how traumatic the gaslighting is and the ableism is. So I really want to work with disabled um, people in the mental health field. Cause I know there are many of us who go to therapy and who also have mental illnesses. So, so yeah, the, the disability definitely played a huge role in my career choice now at it's, this point. Seems like you're going to do some really wonderful things for a lot of people. I'm excited for it. It's, I mean, I, I just want to help people avoid the same level of like anxiety and trauma that I went through when I was in the diagnosis process. Cause I think it only takes like a couple of people in your life saying, no, you're not making this up. This isn't psychosomatic. Um, this is real and you deserve medical care to kind mm. of like change. I don't know to change the way you feel about your illness. Cause I had a friend who was disabled at my previous job, who was the one who told me like, I think you have an autoimmune disease. Don't let them tell you that you're crazy. Like don't give up. And that really like changed my life. So. I'm just wondering if this is the segue into religion or the segue into boundaries and family. I'll let oh. you decide which one. Cause I could go either way with what you just said. Um, I guess, like, I guess let's talk about religion next, because I, I feel like that's super important to me. Um, so I used to be a Christian, and I have now deconverted. Um, and there were a lot of different factors that played into that. Obviously, like, politics was a huge one, but um, it, it didn't become like, I don't know, faith didn't become impossible for me until I realized how serious of a problem ableism is in Christianity. And then I was just like, I can't have any part of this anymore. Like I can't deal with it. Um, and the biggest, the biggest thing that troubles me in Christianity is the notion of faith healing. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people believe that you can can and should pray your illness away or other people should be able to do that for you and unfortunately that doesn't work when you have an incurable chronic illness so 
I got really burned by all of that because um, I, I felt like the Christians, some of the Christians in my life believed that I would be healthy if I just had more faith or was less than full or believed more strongly um, that I could be cured. And that didn't work for me, so. Yeah, that, that, that hits the crosshairs for me. I, I, I have a very interesting journey in, in religious belief in my own family and myself, but I will say that this is not just a, a branch of Christianity. This is, um, if you look at kind of like the, uh, the sort of modern goop or Daniel Laporte mm -hmm. or um, these like spiritual gurus right now, it's the same yeah. brand. It's just yeah. branded of if you aren't joyful, if you aren't committed to your healing, if you are, you know, not drinking these juices that I sell for a hundred dollars a month yeah. like, or uh, a week, <laughs> sorry. Juices. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't knock religion, but I do knock cruelty and I knock, um, I knock uh, not being compassionate. And when a religion stops being compassionate and starts blaming the illness, whether that be, you know, these modern day gurus or, and I've certainly had my, my issues with the faith healing, believe me. <laughs> we have some very similar backgrounds. Um, really? Yeah, uh, <laughs> very much. Um, it, it just, it can be so, so traumatizing when you're, you're people turn to their faith for, for mm -hmm. comfort and for community. And when that turns on you, that's, that's lonely. Yeah, it, it really is. And I just constantly felt like within the religious sphere, my symptoms were blamed on me and very little attention was paid to like, why isn't there more scientific research in these illnesses that may be curable if we just like put some research money into them. And I don't know, I just always, I was always thinking about the systemic issues and the, um, the ableism and the prejudice that was keeping me sick, but all they wanted to talk about was how I needed to just, <laughs> needed to just believe that I was going to get better and then it would happen. And, um, and there, that prejudice is biblically based, like in the New Testament, Jesus blames most of the disabilities he encounters on demon possession, um, <laughs> which once once you really start thinking about that, how how that those faith healing stories are central to the religion, it's pretty hard to continue to stay in the faith as a disabled person. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you're frozen right now. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a. Uh... I have so many, as I was raised in two different religions at the same time growing up. So it was, it was more of a, oh God, that cat is cute. I'm sorry. It's very hard to concentrate. That was a very cute cat. Um, I, I'm going to have to post pictures of your animals on the show notes just so people don't yeah. and like, they're like, what is wrong with this one that she can't stay professional for five seconds? I can't, by the way, I can't stay professional. Um, but cute animals. I can't, I, I just fall apart. Um, Please do. They're so cute. Um, sorry, uh, I'm trying to bring my brain back on online. Um, it's so hard because there's so much about Christianity I deeply admire. Like in my heart and soul, there's so much of that message of loving thy neighbor, of yeah. um, of compassion, 
of radical compassion. Yeah. Um, the, the Mr. Rogers brand of Christianity is kind of like where I'm at. I'm like, this is, this is beautiful kindness and, and love and compassion to all. But then there's another side. If someone's using a bronze age text as the be all and end all without looking yes. at other aspects of the world. And when you can use that to, uh, did you ever see the, the movie saved? No. Okay, it's one of my favorite things ever. It takes place in a, a, a Christian high school, and I, I went to a Catholic high school, and there's a scene where um, the girl throws a Bible at the other girl who picks it up, and she's like, this is not a weapon. <laughs> like, that's, that's kind of the problem. I feel like there's a lot of, um, not just Christian, but there's a lot of religions that have gotten weaponized against yeah. their own members, be it ableism, be it homophobia, be it other, other ways that you can other people, like yeah. once you can decide that these members of our community aren't really a member of our community, they yeah. haven't hit this purity test that makes them healthy and a part of this community. Yeah, I completely agree. And for a long time, I kind of looked past those darker, more harmful sides of Christianity because I was like, oh, I'm a progressive Christian and I, I don't take Old Testament laws or laws from the Apostle Paul as like laws that are applicable today. And as long as I only believe the, the compassionate parts of the Bible and the just parts of the Bible, then it's not harmful. But it was the moment that I realized like that ableism is in the gospels. The, the one part that as a Christian, you're not definitely not supposed to like question then I just realized like even the progressive brand of Christianity can be really harmful too to some people. So that was the moment where I was like, I can't, like, I can't do it anymore. It, I can throw out so much of it, but if I'm now throwing out the gospels too, there's really no point for me to still be in the faith. And I feel much better having left it. It's a relief. <laughs> I, mean, I, I will not comment on your religious journey, but I, I will say that it's, uh, it's so hard when you get marginalized by your family and by your community. Yeah. That's, that's a brutal thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that was, that was just something that I, like, I can't ever fully forgive that, like being mm. ostracized from family. That's, that's not okay. So, um, <laughs> so that leads into the, the question of boundaries. I mean, at this point, I just don't, I don't talk about my illnesses to the family members that I know I can't trust to talk about that without being either given unsolicited medical advice or- Oh, geez, yes. <laughs> or told to pray more. Like, it's, it's, it's a firm boundary that I've set now and it really, it's stunk to have to do that, but I feel like sometimes some people just don't earn the right to hear that story. So that's the beautiful thing to underline a few times that they, they, no one's given the right to hear your medical story. No one's given yeah. the right to hear any of your story. Yeah. Like that's, that's saying that you trust someone enough to share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to underline that one, tattoo it, put it across yeah. the sky, because yeah. you're right. If you start explaining beyond your diagnosis, then that opens the door mm -hmm. for a lot of um, unsolicited and sometimes very cruel advice. Yeah. <laughs> and advice put in quotations. Yeah. Like, it's always the if you just people. Yes. Yeah. The unsolicited medical advice 
was so frustrating. And I finally realized, I mean, I, I don't owe it to them to explain, oh, I've already tried X, Y, and Z, and it didn't work for me. And I don't have to like justify my treatment plan to anyone who, who wants to give me unsolicited medical advice or, or tell me if I only did this, I would get better. Like, I don't have to justify why I didn't get better to them. I can just say, no, thanks. I'm not looking for advice. And then like, move on. I'm so impressed. I'm in my mid forties. I'm, I am just (laughs) starting to work on boundaries. Like just. It's hard. You know, if you feel like you've already been rejected by your family and you've already felt like you're on tenterhooks, like you are trying to earn your place in your community, your family, which is something Mm -hmm. I've, I've been dealing with my whole life with my family. The idea of like creating more boundaries is so scary. Yeah. Like that is, that is hardcore stuff to, to have that bravery, to be like, I am actually going to define how you interact with me. And I always define it as care. And I, I never understood that. Like there are some people in my life who I know when they're saying, if you just, they, they literally are just scared for me and they're trying everything. Like my mother, I love her. And I know she never means it badly, but there, you know, up until about two years ago, there's a lot, if you just, but there's also people in my life where I know it's, it's, it's a claw out thing. It is not meant kindly. Yeah. I, I found I mean, the way I see it, if someone says, oh, if you just tried this, maybe that would cure you. And I say like, hey, I'm actually not looking for medical advice. I've already tried most of the things that you're gonna find on Google. If I tell them that and then they're like, oh, I'm sorry, and then don't do it again going forward, then that's someone I like, that's someone who didn't mean any harm by it and I can still trust going forward. But if I, you know, explain why I don't want their unsolicited advice once, I shouldn't have to keep reminding them like again and again and again, like not looking for advice. So (laughs) I think the difference is, is there's the person who genuinely cares about you and is scared for you and thinks that there might be just something they could do to make it better. And those are lovely people, slightly misguided, but lovely people. Mm -hmm. And then there's the ones who are either egotists that are going to save you yeah. Or there are the people who feel like your disability and chronic illness is an inconvenience to them and they would like right. that part of your life to be over so things get yeah. back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are the three camps I've, I've, I've found. <laughs> I completely agree with that. I think that's a pretty good summary of, <laughs> yeah, the, the people who are, are just ready for you to be not symptomatic anymore so that they don't have to deal with it. Those are the ones that are to me feel the most hurtful because it's like, don't you understand? Like this isn't ending anytime soon. Um, I need support. A lot of people really don't understand like when someone is grieving or going through something, like you just need someone there to support you where you're at and not try to like save you from it or fix it for you. Um, Some people are good at understanding that and some aren't. That's been a, a, quite the discussion with my husband and I about, do I want to be saved or do I need to unload? And yeah. that's, yeah, we've come to a place, actually it's worked with my kids too. If anyone wants a quick note on how to parent teenagers and stay married, uh, do you want to talk and have me listen or do you want my advice has been like the best questions to ask before a discussion. Yeah, that's a great idea. I usually just tell my husband before we have that conversation, like, I just need to vent. <laughs> and yeah. 
and I don't need any solutions right now. And I feel like he usually responds really well to that. Yeah, that's, that's actually been the most helpful thing for me is my husband's a tech and that's his job mm. is someone says they're complaining about something. It's his job to fix it. So it's, I always have to like go, Hey, this is, I just need to bitch for a while. Like Mm -hmm. you just have to let me spin, especially with anxiety. Like that, that even doesn't have a basis in fact, usually when I'm spinning from anxiety. Yeah. I totally feel you there. Yeah. Yeah. His, his ability to try to talk me down at three o'clock in the morning has been, yeah. We we also have teenagers. So there's a lot of three o'clock in the morning, me whimpering and being scared. So Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's lovely. And uh, now he's all in. My son just moved out. So it's now just him with with me and our, our teenage daughter. So he's, he's learning a lot about just stop, listen to what's being said, and just hold it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a crash, crash course for him right now. It's a good skill to learn. I, it's been my favorite one. My yeah, that's that's what's uh, kept us out of out of therapy and married. It's out of divorce court right there. <laughs> Sorry, my, my dogs are going nuts. Um, That's okay. Yeah, so you'd also talked about like the boundaries with your, like one of the things that always strikes me and uh, you know, speaking as a cisgender white woman, mm-hmm. uh, queer, yes, but like just uh, in my own little box that I've, I have experience in is that there are expectations I grew up with of the kind of woman I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to want and how I'm supposed to be as a daughter, a daughter-in-law. Um, <laughs> a sister, a friend, there is like a really high bar of caregiving I'm supposed to give yeah. even as a disabled woman. Like, how do you handle <laughs> that with like the in-laws? And my in-laws are amazing. Please let me just underline that a million times. Mm-hmm. My in-laws are the most loving, caring and understanding people. I hit the jackpot in the in-laws, but I have talked to a lot of people that haven't. And I really would love your take yeah. on like I, how you handle a new family's expectations. And- I definitely feel the pressure with them they so they are the more um so my parents are not religious and i've had lots of issues with them with ableism but um with my husband's parents they're the more religious conservative side of the family and they have a lot of like gender role expectations and i mean (laughs) christianity is a very patriarchal system and they have a lot of Um, expectations for me that I am just not able to fill anymore like I constantly feel (laughs) like by even having an advocacy project um, I am like ignoring their expectation that I be submissive and sweet and gentle and (laughs) uh, non-opinionated and I really feel that pressure and that frustration from them that I'm not filling those expectations and the being disabled only adds to that because, you know, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not the only person in my marriage who is cleaning the apartment and cooking dinner (laughs) and like taking care of the animals. Like there are, most days we split things very egalitarianly and very equally. Um, but there are some days when I can't do any of those like expectations and he does all of it and he's happy to do it. And it's not an issue for him, but I feel that pressure 
from them. Like every time, um, you know, they see Aaron cooking, my husband cooking instead of me, it's like, there's just that little bit of like uh, tension. Mm. And I find that really frustrating because those roles are very, uh, I don't know, very outdated and very harmful to women. So and men and yeah. and and trans people like yeah. it doesn't there's no aspect this doesn't hurt right and if you're looking at a partnership a, a partnership is supposed to be someone who helps shore up your weak sides and helps celebrate your strengths and that needs to go both ways if your weakness yeah. is i can't clean then your partner should be like i'm gonna be cleaning right now <laughs> like yeah. that shouldn't even be a question like a partnership is about you know you, you've got each other's backs at all time like you should always be able to lean backwards and have someone there yeah i'm i'm really grateful that my husband has been awesome at dealing with chronic illness and disability and totally on board for like having an egalitarian relationship and also being willing to pour pull more of the weight than i am when i'm not able to so i'm super grateful for that but i wish I wish there wasn't this expectation that, mm. you know, he shouldn't be, he shouldn't be doing that stuff. He's, he's going above and beyond <laughs> their expectations for him by ever cooking or ever cleaning. And it's, it's just crazy to me that that's still the expectation and the norms. The bar is set so different. Like yeah. I, no one can deny, like I, I had to talk to my husband about, you know, like it's, he's amazing, but he doesn't always see stuff because he, he isn't, that person he hasn't grown mm -hmm. up with that and so i showed him a man's magazine men's life or something like a, just a general like men's magazine and a general women's magazine and i just showed him the headlines i'm like if you look here it's all about what you can do for others yeah how to be a better mother how to be a better wife how to be a better friend how to be a better you know daughter sibling whatever how to cook better how to clean better and then by the way you also need to take care of yourself because then you're not taking care of everyone else if you're not taking right. care of yourself properly and yeah. the men's magazine was how to get ripped <laughs> steak dinners you can make for yourself here's some yeah. cool culture stuff here's some like it was all about like yourself it had nothing nothing to do with like how to be a better dad projects you can do with your kids hey this is how you can go on a really good date this is you yeah. know how you can take care of someone else like mm -hmm. and nothing about taking care of anything else and you know I showed him like five different magazines like that and he was like okay yeah I got that's that's pretty brutal and we're not just fighting against our bodies ourselves or trying to explain something to our spouse or our own friends you know we have a whole peanut gallery that is ready to mm -hmm. keep us in check in our roles yeah yeah it seems very unfair <laughs> it's it's it gets, um, I found it got harder as a mother because the expectations for me to be considered a decent mother were light years away. Like if my husband picked my child or our child up from daycare, he was a God amongst men. Like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, absolute God, if my child and I dropped my child off and she did not have a lunch prepared the way they wanted mm -hmm. it prepared, if her hair was not done, I'm not kidding about that one. If she was wearing an outfit that didn't match, if, you know, there was like a whole list of things, they would just side eye me and be like, and the daycare director actually took me to task for like stuff. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, there's another spouse here, right? Like a healthy one too. Like it's pretty intense what we're expected to live up to. Yeah, that's very obvious double standard. Like, I, I always get that sense that anytime 
um, my husband has observed like cooking or cleaning or doing anything it's that is supposed to be my role it's like wow he's the best man ever you're so lucky like I can't believe you found him and then it's like it's just assumed that I'm going to do that stuff and if I don't then I'm like not a good enough wife or daughter or daughter-in-law oh my Um, god yes (laughs) I mean also that you're lucky you know yes I am I found the most amazing wonderful human to share my life with Mm -hmm. I am super lucky for that but that I found someone who is willing to meet me and help fill in my my weaknesses oh my god that's (laughs) I mean that's a, a really kind of cruel space to put things and also the divorce rates for women who have chronic illness or people who present as female who have chronic illness is so much higher. The divorce rate is so different for anyone who's female presenting who has chronic illness versus uh, male presenting. It, it's yeah. like 60% for my illness. Wow. I do remember, um, I don't know, I just, I remember in one of your previous podcasts, you were talking about how, I mean, kind of that same thing. Uh, that same like reverse, or I don't know, like the the unequal expectations in chronic illness. How like if a man stays married to a uh, someone with a chronic illness and helps be a caretaker, he's seen as like heroic for doing that. But it's it shouldn't be like seen as such a major sacrifice on his part for just not leaving someone who's disabled or chronically ill. All you have to do is look up breast cancer survivor stories and you will see a whole bunch of of, um, wives who have been left at hospitals after their surgery where they were to serve with divorce. There is a whole subgroup that you will find. It's it's disgusting. It's intense. And like someone, I won't call it who it is, um, but so in my own life, um, her husband, who her ex-husband for the last like 10 years <laughs> just got injured. She's taking care of him right now. I have never heard that story in reverse. Not once. Right. I mean, I'm sure it happened. And if yeah. you are that person, I, you know, mazel tov, cheers, blessed be. But um, it's not the story we expect. You hear that story and you're like, oh, that's really kind of her, but it's not a shock. Yeah. (laughs) Women don't get congratulated for like not leaving someone who's chronically ill or disabled. Can we underline that one? Women don't get (laughs) congratulated. Female presenting people do not get congratulated for doing heroic acts or very Mm -hmm. high level acts that, and I say heroic because if male presenting people did it, they would be given standing ovations. There would be newspaper articles like that's that's a big disparity of like yeah. the level of compassion and caregiving we're supposed to give as a gender role <laughs> it's like and that's damaging to everyone like there are so many compassionate loving wonderful male presenting people who are i i i know a lot of them they are wonderful and they get shamed for doing that yeah yeah like treated like they're whiffed or something like like yeah. their partner has control, I don't know, is like controlling them or something just by expecting like an equal partnership. Or if you just watch kids, like if you just yeah. watch, like how we treat like a, you know, a, a little boy who is compassionate and caring and the words that get associated there with a male presenting child versus like a female presenting child who is like bossy 
Right. <laughs> like, not that she's a leader, not that she's strong, she's bossy, you know, and a boy who is doing this is soft and we have to toughen him up. Like, this mm. is ingrained in so much and so many cultures. Like, yeah. and it's, it's not kind or caring or compassionate or making yeah. a better society for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, exodus of family and friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, I know that that happens to pretty much everyone who becomes chronically ill or disabled, like as an adult or as a teenager, but I, it still shocked me when that happened. Like I, I mean, and I have so many great friends who have stuck around and I'm really grateful for that. And I don't want to like, I don't know. I don't want to ignore like how kind and awesome the friends I still have are, but all of the people who just kind of like ghost you eventually Mm. when you've been (laughs) ill for too long, like, I don't understand what that's about. Like, I don't understand what I did wrong to, (laughs) to deserve that. If it's just that, you know, being chronically ill makes us less fun to hang out with or less dependable or what, but I really never dreamed that I would just have so many friends kind of like slowly disappear after a while and family too. That, (laughs) I don't know about you, but do you ever wonder like how much of your personality is based around singing for your supper? Yeah. Like being entertaining enough for someone to still want to hang out with you, even though you're sick. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always curious about that. You feel like you have to make it worth worth it to them to stay friends with you or stay close to you by like I don't know by going above and beyond um what's normally expected of a friend just to prove that you're worth still being friends with even with a disability yeah so it's like you know we're marked down goods like right (laughs) and that's saying that you internalize like that's you know, if you, if you are listening and you've not internalized this, please contact me, tell me what I can do. I need the help. But yeah. And the ghosting is almost yeah. more cruel. Like I've, yeah. I've had it both ways. I had um, someone I was uh, engaged to leave because they couldn't deal with the illness and they were honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was easier for me yeah. in some ways because it's like, okay, there's nothing I can do about the illness. You've got to yeah. go. Uh, that hurts and that's bad rejection. But the people who just, I thought I would do anything for them. And I thought right. they were on the same board and then they're yeah. just gone. That yeah. was, and, and what are you going to call them out on? Like, you know, what are you going <laughs> to, and it's hard to, to even know for sure if it was the illness that made it happen or was it something else? Cause they never really, yeah, I don't know. They never explain why they disappeared. And it's, I'm left to assume that it was probably because my needs have changed and I'm a different person now because of the illness, but um, it still hurts even if you know, like even if you have a feeling, okay, it's because I'm chronically ill and clearly this friendship is not meant to be because I can't be friends with someone who doesn't uh, accept my chronic illness, but it's still painful. And I think that's where um, having this Instagram account and advocacy project has really like helped me a lot because it's been really great to make friends with other chronically ill and disabled people 
because um, then I know that they're not going to just stop being friends with me one day because my illness has made me less fun to hang out with or whatever. Um, and plus being able to connect with people over the internet is fantastic because you never have to leave your apartment or home to do it. I want to do a quick energy check on you because we hit an hour and I don't want to over exhaust you, but I really want to talk about keyboard warrior. Um, and uh, if you want, we can move this to another day if you're getting tired, but if you've got a little energy and you want to keep talking about that, I definitely want to get into that. Okay. I'm good to keep okay. going. Yeah. I just, I always want to check on people because like, I will just keep talking and then I'm like, oh my God, I need to lay down for the next four weeks. Um, so I just want to check in with you. Um, I really want to talk about this because the word keyboard warrior, um, that's used so derogatorily and that's really upsetting when that's all you have. Mm -hmm. Like I'm super into black lives matter. I am yeah. super into LGBTQ. Like I, I like literally if it's about like protecting someone's right to live and exist yeah. happily, I'm there. I cannot mm -hmm. march. I cannot do yeah. this. So like keyboard is kind of all I've got. So talk to me about your advocacy that you do online and let's, let's kind of like start dispelling this idea that like, that's, that's nothing like that really yeah. upsets me. I mean, having the, having social media as a tool to tell your story and to connect with other people is huge when you're chronically ill and disabled, because otherwise, how would I ever meet other chronically ill and disabled people who share my experiences um, because we're not often out protesting or marching or um, even hanging out. And I mean, even in pre-COVID days, we're not often like going out and I don't know, like having <laughs> chronic illness meetups or something like we're all kind of homebodies. So having a platform to talk and meet other people is just fantastic. Um, and the, the biggest or the most rewarding thing for me has been just uh, having other people comment and say, like, I've experienced this too, or like, I can completely relate to this, or just share their story um, with me. Because prior to having this account, I thought that my experience was something unique. And like, it was something about me that was making doctors treat me badly and friends disappear and all this kind of stuff, all this bad stuff that was happening. I just, I didn't understand that it was something that was universal to chronically ill and disabled people. So I think social media is an amazing tool to connect mm. and to advocate. And it's also been a really great way for me to learn um, more about movements like Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ movement and like be a better ally um, because I constantly get exposed to uh, perspectives that I've never heard before because I'm in my little like Kansas suburbia rural bubble. Is that where you are? I didn't know where you yeah. were. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a small town in Kansas. Um, now I live in Olathe, which is a suburb of Kansas City. But I mean, I, I'm still in a bubble, even though I'm in the Kansas City area, because I live in like, white, relatively wealthy suburbia. Um, and, you know, this, I don't know, social media has been really eye opening for me. 
I, I cannot agree more. Like I, I live in the Bay area. Um, I live in mm -hmm. California. I've, I've always lived in California and I have a bubble in the other way. And I find it really important to not have an echo chamber. So Twitter, yeah. while it's one of the worst places I've <laughs> ever been in, uh, that is a, a place to guard your mental health. It allows me to see other people's perspectives. It allows mm -hmm. me to get other news sources that I don't agree with and that I do, mm -hmm. like I can at least look at and say, okay, this is what other people are thinking and feeling. Okay, now I've got this. And I've been able to follow advocates that I wouldn't have understood that perspective. Yeah. And that's been really helpful. I don't have Twitter yet. Don't, don't, no, run, <laughs> yeah. run away. <laughs> because of that exact thing that you just described, how oh. it's like a definite uh, mental health uh, challenge sometimes, uh, just because people can be kind of like mean on <laughs> Twitter. Um, and I have, I have dealt with a few like trolls and bullies on Instagram too. And, and I'm always surprised by how much that like, affects my my day or my week when gosh one time I had some random person just like send me like seven comments or something long of just like uh insults and like um I don't know like insulting my future therapy practice insulting my uh disability activism and all all this stuff and so there are moments when like social media even on Instagram is like uh, a little bit scary or a little bit like unkind, but for the most part, Instagram, I feel like is pretty, pretty kind and pretty gentle compared to Twitter. And Facebook. Yeah. I, I say Facebook is where you go to dislike the people you know. Yeah. Like I, I'm always just in shock of like family members and like you know, people I've known for years. I'm like, this is this, yeah. <laughs> this, you thought this was something to publicly say. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel you there because being from a small town in Kansas, like I see a lot of super conservative perspectives that I strongly disagree with from people. I had no idea they were so uh, racist or homophobic or transphobic or ableist or, or whatever. Like I just I see a lot of stuff that's like, very disturbing, especially right now in the middle of COVID and um, the Black Lives Matter movement really finally catching the attention of white people everywhere. <laughs> I can't believe it's taken this long. I, I can't. Yeah. Like, I remember the Rodney King riots. I was, I think I was a teenager when they happened. And I remember being shocked because I grew mm -hmm. up in a pretty, like, I grew up in a weird area, but I didn't know, like I was taught police are always good, just like doctors, like police, doctors, you know, teachers, uh, pastors, yeah. like all these people are authorities. Yep. They say goes. And by the way, they have your best interest at heart at all mm -hmm. times. And Rodney King was such an awakening um, for, for me and, by, and my parents and the people around us who just had never really thought that this could be a question mark. And yeah. that was decades ago. How, how yeah. did we like just shuffle that off to the side and, and stop considering that that was you know, st <laughs> still happening? And how are we still making this question in suburbia of, mm -hmm. because we can call the police and we can expect to be helped. Yeah. That other people are yelling at us, telling us, no, that's not how that works for us. If we call the police, we get hurt or killed or arrested 
like, why can't we listen to, to a, a large group of people telling us that the system is only working for one group? Yeah. I, sorry, I, that was my tirade. I'll get no, off. I'm I, I totally <laughs> I've been you. yelling I, on Twitter too much. I've been sitting here wondering, like, how did I not understand how bad things were, like, so much sooner? I mean, why did it, why did it take all of these videos of police violence for me to really, like, understand how serious the problem is? And I, I think, I mean... <laughs> I grew up in a town where we were taught whitewashed history and we were taught that everything, all racism ended after Jim Crow and everything's great now. And we're in Kansas, so we're on the right we're side. We're post-racial now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what we were taught. Oi, oi, that hurts. I mean, yeah. And I'm only like in the past few years now starting to comprehend like how far from accurate any of that was. And uh, so I've been trying to like incorporate more Black Lives Matter and Black Disabled Lives Matter advocacy into my advocacy work online because I mean, I feel like if we're not, if we're talking about disability, but we're not talking about racism and transphobia and homophobia and all of these other intersecting issues, we're not really doing the work um, but it's it's messy and painful and and definitely I feel like that white fragility uh, kind of coming to the surface sometimes. And when I'm challenged on my own privilege, so I'm trying really hard to work on that. And that's you know I think there's a big misunderstanding in white fragility of like you have to take guilt and responsibility for what people did and it's like what's my understanding of this and what i've been holding very close is that it's my responsibility to understand the privilege mm -hmm. and it's my understanding my my responsibility to see what it was see who didn't have it and if i have a voice or a chance to yeah. advocate as hard as i can to level yeah. that playing field and that's what i keep seeing my family mention is things like i shouldn't feel guilty for slave owners i wasn't a slave owner it's like no you weren't and no one said you were what we're saying is, is there has been a systematic mm -hmm. issue of keeping black people, not only from gaining wealth, but the second they did murdering them. Yeah. And, and we're still benefiting from that system, even if we're not actively, we don't think we're actively contributing to it. But we are benefiting from it. Yeah. And that's the important thing to understand. And you know, you feel however you need to feel about that. That's a fact. And then you need to work on creating a level playing field, creating, yeah. you know, a sense of fairness instead of a sense of equality. Like you need, to, mm -hmm. I, I may have missed that, that boat, but um, it's the idea of like, you give people what they need to get to the point they need to be at, you know, that's going to be different for different groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, I've been, <laughs> I've been on the internet a little too much in the last yeah. <laughs> 48 hours, if you can't tell, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and you're right, we can't leave people behind. And that's been the problem with advocacy in the fat, especially in feminism. That's yeah. been one of the most dark, disgusting parts of the feminist movement is the removal of black and trans right. people from this advocacy. We can't do that. Like, it's, it's yeah. not acceptable. Like, to say I deserve rights, but you not so much. Like, that's yeah. just unacceptable. Yeah, what JK Rowling has been doing right now is like, Really, my perfect life. example <laughs> of that. <laughs> Do you know how much 
I loved Harry Potter, like, growing up, I there. loved, and now I'm like, you are destroying. Yeah. But I think that, like, I was talking to my, my daughter has no interest in Harry Potter. Like, she's totally disgusted. She's like, Hermione's so much smarter. What are we doing? Like, why, why are we doing this? Like, and, um, I think a lot of it was that it was a time, like when, when mm -hmm. that came out, it was one of the first books that actually like gave credit to young people for being intelligent. Yeah. Like, and it really like, was interesting to read and fun to read. And there's a lot of problems with it. Now reading it again, I'm like, I missed a lot. I really, yeah. <laughs> oh man, how did I, how did I miss that? <laughs> yeah. But it was, you know, the thing was, is there wasn't the large awareness to remind us what we were missing. Like my husband and I were just watching one of my favorite comedy shows. Like I love stand-up comedy mm -hmm. and we were listening to one of my favorite stand-up comedians of all time. And it's my favorite set. I laugh until my kidneys hurt with the set. And then we were listening to it last night. I looked at him and I'm like, how did I not catch? I've heard this yeah. set 50 times. How didn't I not catch that? And then, like, we have a 13-year-old who reminds us all the time, like, when we were watching uh, Star Wars, the second one. She loved mm -hmm. the first one. Leia's a badass. Second one, oh, my God. Like, what happened? Like, and she was like, that's assault. She said no to him. He pushed his hand against her face. They're on a spaceship. Where's she going to go? And forced her to kiss him. That's assault, Mom and Dad. And we're looking at each other going, yes, that is. How did we not? You know, and then we watch Indiana Jones. All live Indiana Jones. And we're like, mm -hmm. I, like, ah! it's crazy how much you miss and then now with I don't know with all the access we have to understanding other perspectives and and being more socially aware it's it's crazy to rewatch Seth now and be like wow that was super messed up and I didn't even notice but do you think that part of it is that the bar got raised for everyone, yeah, including, for sure. you know, cisgender white male filmmakers and producers right. to like the bar was so low before that it was like, they have a woman and she's not cleaning. Uh -huh. like, yeah. I feel like our bar got raised so, like before mm -hmm. we were so expecting something, even though it was bad that when it wasn't like as bad as we were expecting, we were super celebratory. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else was I going to ask? I had one other thing before I like, uh, I'm so sorry. Like I, I have not been able to actually keep food down in about four days. So I'm oh, a little loopy right now. So please forgive. Um, no worries. Oh goodness. What was I going to, Oh, I know the last thing I want to talk to you about. And then if you have anything else, please jump in. But you had mentioned long distance running. And yeah. I was curious how you handle when your coping mechanism got taken away. Oh gosh, it was pretty awful for a long time because that was that was my thing. Like that was the thing I placed all my identity in and that was my passion and that was my coping mechanism when I was feeling anxious or sad. And um, it's also the, the way that my husband and I met. We met like Aww. at the KU running club and we um, like bonded over our mutual love of long distance running and he encouraged me to run my first ultra marathon which was uh about a month and a half before like chronic illness proper began so that was pretty horrible um to lose that and like i for a long time i had a lot of denial like i just thought well so with spondylitis um because it attacks your ligaments, um, 
at first it always just seems like a few injuries here and there like it kind of it kind of strikes like one joint at a time at first and so I kept thinking like oh it's just another injury I need to like uh go to PT and like stretch and ice and I'll be fine and instead of getting it better it just kept getting worse so uh, I was like devastated when I realized I'm never going to run another, I'm probably never going to run another marathon again, or even another half marathon. Um, at this point, if I can run like two miles without being in severe pain, that's a good, a good run and something I haven't done in a while. So it's tough. I had to find replacements. So that's why now I walk regularly um, and like, I mean, there have been a lot of different interests that have started to fill that void, like the Instagram account, and now having a puppy that fills the void a little bit too. <laughs> Just something new to like focus on and put my value in, like, and find my identity from. So it was rough. <laughs> I remember for a while, uh, I would tell my husband, like, just don't talk about running to me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to think about it. And when I would see people running on the road, and if they didn't look like they were having fun, I would think, like, they need to, like, enjoy what they've got and appreciate it more. And I was just, like, angry for a long time. But now I'm finally getting to the point where, you know, I'm past the denial. <laughs> I'm past the bargaining. I'm past the anger. So I'm Sometimes I am like still really sad about it, but other times I feel this sense of acceptance. And so I kind of went through like all the stages of grief with it. And I'm finally starting to like move past it, but I still miss it. How did the grieving process work for you? It was, I don't know. I mean, chronic illness in general has been a long, slow grieving process for me. Um, and I, I feel like uh, I didn't understand that for a long time. I mean, I was in therapy and I didn't even understand like why I'm so angry or I'm why I'm constantly like in denial or whatever. It's like I had all these classic grieving stages, but I didn't even understand that's what it was for the longest time because we, when we think of grieving, we think of like losing a loved one but losing yourself and your hobbies and everything you took for granted is like worth grieving too so well you are losing a loved one you're losing yeah. yourself like, yeah so much of yourself yeah so it was pretty awful and isolating for a long time but then once I finally started to realize it was grief that I was feeling then it's like oh okay so I just need to like feel this and process it and talk about it and like understand that it's going to be a long, slow process. And I don't know, then it kind of got easier after that. Like once I finally realized that's what I was dealing with. And how did, how did you deal once you're like, this is, this is, this is what I'm grieving. How are you? <laughs> um, I try to just work on like letting myself like physically feel the emotions which sounds so obvious, but for a long time, I was trying to like stuff it down and ignore it and stuff. But once I realized it was grief and there was like no way out of it except to just 
deal with it. I, I started letting myself cry more and like letting myself like punch a pillow when I was angry or like <laughs> yell in the car, like on the way home from work when no one could hear me. And that sounds really sad, but it, it really helped to just kind of let myself physically like feel the emotions um, and express them, even if it was while I was by myself. Uh, and then it just sort of started to fade away a little bit, like the more I felt it. It's uh, Lisa Snyderman, um, AO'd. She's doing an entire, I'm actually supposed to be doing a thing on this, but she's doing a symposium about grief and chronic illness. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm probably the worst person to ask to do this because I haven't grieved yet and it's been years. And but it's such an important process at this. Yeah. And I think so many of us are like, this is how I'm going to rock it. This is how I'm going to do better. Yeah. This is how I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to come out the stronger. I'm going to come out. And you might, you absolutely might. But I certainly like the second I couldn't work anymore. I was like, okay, what's yeah. my next project? Yeah. What's the next thing I'm going to do? Cause this is not going to beat me. Yeah. Instead of like honoring what it did beat in me, it yeah. did beat some things. It did kill some things. And I never took a minute to like, do that because I was afraid I wouldn't crawl back out of that hole. Yeah. I, in my experience, like it feels, it's really, really hard to like actually let yourself sit in the grief, but like it doesn't last forever and it will get better. So I don't know. That's the one thing I would tell anyone who like hasn't really grieved it yet is like, don't be afraid to let yourself feel because it will eventually get better. It just won't be easy and it won't be quick. Um, and you'll probably go through every grieving stage just like you're losing someone, but it does get better. I keep thinking about, I, I mean, I spent forever in the bargaining stage. That was when I was like, oh, I'm going to like completely <laughs> avoid all unhealthy foods. I'm never gonna have sugar again and I'm never gonna <laughs> Like, I'm eat. sorry for laughing. I, I'm so on board with this. Yeah. I so hear you. Yeah, I'm never gonna have starch again. I'm never gonna eat anything like inflammatory or I don't know, anything with histamines. I was kind of on this like autoimmune paleo mindset where I was like, if I just do all of this, I can cure it. And if I do everything perfectly, like then I'll be better. And like eventually I just had to accept like no amount of dietary restrictions or like lifestyle changes are actually going to cure me. I just like, <laughs> this is just part of the process. Like this is just one step in the grieving process. So I, I don't feel that pressure anymore to like do everything perfectly in order to try to, I don't know, magically cure myself. I hear that. Well, we are almost at an hour and a half. So is there anything that you wanted to hit on that we have not gotten to? No, I don't think so. We covered it all. <laughs> Sorry all right. for keeping you so long. Oh my, like I didn't kidnap you. Um, <laughs> you really didn't have an option. Um, so one last question. What's kind, what's gentle, what's badass in your world? Ow. Mm, um, well, I feel like right now for me, that thing is our puppy, which I will send you pictures of, Please. Um, but that has been like having a puppy has been an amazing motivation to like be kinder to myself and be gentler with others around me. And to also like 
I don't know, just work really hard on something that matters to me, which is like <laughs> training a happy, healthy, uh, gentle puppy. So that's, that's kind of been my, my positive focus right now. That is awesome. Abby, thank you so much for being yeah. on. I'm sure you are going to make an amazing mental health professional. I can't wait to see what you end up doing. Um, everyone, uh, we are really creating a network. Uh, Jason from Discomfort FM is coming on to the Invisible Not Broken Network. So we're going to have multiple podcasts on to Invisible Not Broken. It's getting really exciting. Um, and I think that's about all the news I have for everyone, except that we're starting a magazine and that oh. will be out hopefully September 2020 and the first issue will be on medical bias. So these submissions will open up next week. If you go to our website, invisiblenotbroken.com, we're going to be looking for your artwork, your stories, your reporting, um, and your essays. And please keep the writing under a thousand words. I am doing this on my own and I am sick. So uh, be gentle with me on that. And I uh, can't wait to put out our first issue. It'll be really exciting. So until next week, be kind, be gentle, and be a badass. I don't think it's ever been more important.